0: morning we're going to read from hebrews chapter 9 verses 1 through 10 it says now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for a tent was prepared the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence It's called the holy place behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim, the glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly regularly into that first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood,
1: All right, thank you so much for being here with us this morning. My name's Rodney, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I am just, yeah, it's incredibly, um, it's an incredible blessing to have so many visitors here with us on this special day when we recognize our children. Um, One of the ways that we feel best to celebrate our children is to hold in high regard the word through which their salvation, um, their hope is described. And so this morning, we want to do that, not just for them, but for all of us, by continuing uh, our study in the book of Hebrews. So this morning, we're just going to be walking right along uh, with the series we've been in, and we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, uh, talking about the tabernacle. Again, in the meantime, uh, if kids get restless, there is room to let the kids run downstairs and still hear what's going on up here, uh, so you're more than welcome to do that. Uh, before we dive in, I do uh, I did just want to reiterate, um, if you had any questions, about the announcements or uh, the meeting we're having this Wednesday. If you didn't receive that email, make sure to come see me. Um, by God's grace, you know we have a lot to discuss regarding our building and future partnership opportunities. So we're looking forward to have everybody who considers this their church home at our meeting on Wednesday. This morning, though, we're in Hebrews chapter 9. And I want to start Hebrews chapter 9 by giving you a brief recap of where we've been the last couple weeks in Hebrews chapter 8. After weeks of discussing the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek, in chapter 8, the author declared the point of all of that. That point being that we have a superior high priest in Jesus Christ. And because he is a better high priest, he has brought forth a better covenant promise, that being the gospel, the truth that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to live a perfect life, to die a brutal death, so that for those who are his, there's no longer condemnation but everlasting joy in Jesus. And God's people had clung to the old covenant as their only source of hope for generations. And so the original readers of the Hebrews, those who were hearing this for the first time, were understandably struggling with the concept of a superior covenant. It was causing a great deal of friction in the early church. And due to the weight of this issue, they had really been guilty of just avoiding considering it deeply, as the author of Hebrews pointed out earlier in the book. In chapter 9, the author continues to drag them along into the depths of the better promise, into the depths of the gospel that we have received through Jesus. And in verses 1 through 10, the the inadequacy of the Old Covenant is demonstrated through the earthly sanctuary, which is described in verses 1 through 10. I'll start by reading verses 1, 2, and 3. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Through Moses, the Lord not only gave specific instructions for worship, but he also designated a specific place for worship to take place. As we discussed last week, in this we see the character of God. The God of the old covenant is the same as the God of the new, and his character is consistent throughout. The grace that is so evident in the new covenant is demonstrated in the old through the Lord's patience and provision for a stubborn people that he has overlooked their stubbornness a million times. In the same way, the holy authority of God demonstrated and his specifications for the building of the temple demonstrates his authority in declaring himself the way, the truth, and the life. God is gracious all the way throughout redemptive history, and he is also holy all throughout redemptive history. Hebrews 9, the verses that Brandon read for you this morning, describes what's taking place in Exodus 25 through 30, where God tells the people of God how they are to worship. This stood in stark contrast to what was happening amongst the pagan neighbors of those in that day. They seemed to do as they pleased. Their gods were forever changing, and their worship seemed to ebb and flow based on whatever desire of the flesh they wanted to incorporate in the moment, which sounds a good deal like today in many ways. But this would not be so for Israel. God set the parameters, both in the acts and in the location where they would be carried out. These acts would be carried out in the tabernacle built to his specifications. As we discussed last week, the point of the tabernacle was not the shadow it cast, but the form which it represented, which we will focus on today. First, we'll start by looking at this tent, and I'll be brief on this, as I know we have much to do. For a tent was prepared. The tabernacle was a tent that was 45 feet long and 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. It was that specific. And the tent was divided into two rooms. The larger room, which was described as the first section, was 15 feet by 30 feet. And it is called here in Scripture the holy place. And in the holy place, the Scripture we just read tells us there was a lampstand. And this is where the lamps of the tabernacle set. We don't know the exact size of these lamps, but the lampstand was made of pure gold, and it provided the only light for the entirety of the tabernacle. Beside the lampstand, there was a table, which was made of wood and covered with gold. It was three feet long, one and a half feet wide, and two feet three inches high. It held 12 loaves of bread on it that was called the showbread, and each loaf of bread represented God's fellowship with the 12 tribes of Israel. And within their sanctuary, there was a veil, a thick, elaborate curtain. And it separated the holy place from the holy of holies, from the deep inner beings of the temple. This was a smaller room that was 15 feet by 15 feet. And it is where God chose to dwell during this season in redemptive history. This second section, the holy of holies, is described in verses 4 and 5 where it says this. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Within the Holy of Holies, it's described as there's a golden altar of incense. This, again, was made with wood that was overlaid with gold And it stood at the veil before the Holy of Holies. It was used to burn incense. And within the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. This was a a chest, once again, made with wood, covered in gold, and it had rings for poles at its side to carry it without touching the Ark itself because the very presence of God was being so powerful, so profound, that you couldn't even touch it directly, but you held these poles at the side. And inside this chest, the Ark of the Covenant but it says contained the golden pot that had the manna, it contained Aaron's rod, and it contained the tablets of the covenant. I don't, I'm not going to go too far into all these details, but these three things, being within the Ark of the Covenant, are specific and intentional and worthy of considering. The manna reminded Israel of God's provision and of their ungratefulness. Aaron's rod was inside because it reminded Israel of their rebellion and of God's absolute authority. And the tablets of the covenant reminded Israel of their failure to keep the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. And then there was the mercy seat. This was essentially the lid for the Ark of the Covenant, and it was made with the designs of the cherubim upon it. The cherubim were heavenly creatures who God gave specific tasks, and in this case, they guarded the very presence of the Lord. In the Holy of Holies, we see a marvelous description of the mercy of our God. Our God is not bound by time or space. Yet for the good of his people, here he chose to be confined to both this time and this space. He knew that only his presence could give the people the strength and confidence needed to move forward toward the promised land. And so he chose to dwell in their presence and essentially this studio apartment of God's grace. In this way, God foreshadowed the greater sacrifice he would soon make for his people on the cross, choosing to constrain himself, to humble himself, in order that he might be amongst the people whom he loved. For as God looked down into the ark, he saw the symbols of Israel's sin, rebellion, and failure to honor and obey him. That's what the items within the ark were meant to portray. And yet when the blood of the sacrifice, which we have talked about a good deal, was sprinkled upon it on the day of atonement, he saw the blood of Jesus at Calvary. He knew that a better priest was coming to usher in a better promise. The superiority of this better priest, which we have talked so much about, is once again demonstrated in verses 6 and 7. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But in the second only, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Regular sin offerings and sacrifices were made to atone for sin. But on the day of atonement, things were different. The Day of Atonement was a time to acknowledge and beg God's mercy for the unintentional sins of the people. When we consider our need for a perfectly holy God, we can barely scratch the surface of how deep that need actually goes. Even the Christian who is mature in his awareness of sin and his own brokenness cannot fathom the full depths of it. Some sins are blatant and obvious, and to take part in them is shameful and offensive to God. Yet some sins are not even recognized by us. Believe it or not, some things we believe to be right, we will one day discover were in fact not right. And on the Day of Atonement, these unintentional sins, the uh, uh, sacrifice was put forward on behalf of them. In His grace, God made a way to atone for these sins while the people awaited the Messiah, the perfect priest. And this means that was through the tabernacle. But the thing about the tabernacle was and I think you've probably picked up on this by now, is that everything had to be just right. And God could only be approached in atonement once a year. And not just any of the priests could go through, but only this one high priest. And before that one high priest could go, he also had to offer a sacrifice for himself because he was imperfect. In other words, in other words, in this earthly period of history, in this early time, Let's just be honest, like as you're reading this, in this really strange time in the history of God's people, the way to God was very limited. It was very limited. His presence was sealed off behind the curtain. But the good news of the gospel is that that curtain was always intended to be opened. And that is the point of this text. And we see this in verses 8 through 10, our final verses this morning. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates There's a great deal we could say about that passage. The reality that these offerings ultimately couldn't deal with the conscience of the worshiper, those unintended sins. But for this morning, I want to, because of our time, I want to focus on two key terms in verses 8 through 10. The idea of this present age and the time of reformation. The first section of the tabernacle, which stood kind of as this barrier, essentially, between God and man was symbolic of the present age, this text tells us, that being the period of the first advent. Through the tabernacle, God made a way to be in the midst of his people, even when they could not approach him, because despite their sacrifices, they were imperfect, unclean, and could not come before a God who is perfectly holy. The arrival of the Lamb that could make them clean ended the present age. And it ushered in what this verse is calling the time of Reformation. This is the whole point of the letter of Hebrews. It's what the letter of Hebrews is trying to drive home time and time again. When the Son of God stepped out of heaven into the world, when He moved into the neighborhood, this present time ended. This strange, distant way of relating to God would be no more. For God has always desired to have fellowship with his people, and now he would have that once again through the man Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God ushered in a new day of reformation, where Jesus replaces the great high priest and the temple and the blood of the animals and the food and the drink rituals. All of that is replaced with a better promise, the promise of the gospel. This is what Hebrews is all about is drilling into the people of God the better promise they have been given in Jesus? Because very soon, the temple would be utterly destroyed and the entire priestly sacrificial system was going to be wiped out. The remnants of it that remained were not going to be there much longer and the author of Hebrews wants the people to be prepared for that. He wants the people to understand that this is for their good. Our works were not sufficient then and they are not sufficient now, but Jesus Christ is. The truth of the gospel is the truth that you cannot earn salvation, but salvation was purchased for you in Jesus Christ. We do not seek to do good works so that the Father will love us, but we seek to do good works because the Father loves us, and that is incredibly different. God's plan was always pointing to Jesus because he's the one able to mediate a better covenant. As we close this morning, I just want to encourage you that his mediation, through his mediation, everything is different. Your daily blood sacrifice has been exchanged for daily fellowship with Jesus. A temple has been replaced with a family that you get to come be a part of. Limited access has been exchanged for complete access for all who claim Jesus as their Savior. And the Holy of Holies has been exchanged for you. You are the place where the Spirit of God now dwells. This is what the gospel has done, and the implications are extraordinary. 1 Peter mentions these implications in passing in 1 Peter 1, verse 12, where it says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look the angels who dwell in the heavenly tabernacle are blown away by the gospel and all that it has accomplished in giving us access to God. Imagine the perspective of the saints of old when they look at you, Christian. No matter how much blood they spilled, no matter how much work they did, it could not make them clean. God was gracious to overlook their debt, but it could not be paid. But for you, it has fully and completely. They were blessed to see the work of God, but they knew nothing of sitting and communing with, communing with him. Yet in Jesus Christ, you have been invited to do just that. This is why we gather. This is why we celebrate days like today as a people, because we have been given access to the Father. That's why we celebrate in all kinds of ways. We just had a men's fellowship on Friday night. We got together and we kind of ended the school year Uh, by bowling, and it was just a crazy time. A bunch of grown men acting uh, like kids, just celebrating uh, the brotherhood we have because of the gospel. It was also just a time of of Brandon Holland wiping the floor with all of us while the rest of us tried to see how fast we could, mostly me and Adam, how fast we could throw the bowling ball. It was just a silly time of just the kind of silly joy that you can only have as a people who have an everlasting hope. We celebrate as a people with that kind of hope. The Lord's presence is continually in our midst, even in the midst of a bowling alley. At the cross, the curtain was torn. The curtain that kept God on the other side was torn, and we have been welcomed to sit at the feet of the God of the universe, and not simply to sit at his feet, as those who are seeking knowledge and guidance, but as children sitting on the lap of an adorning father. Tim Keller once wrote, the only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And We have been granted that kind of access through Jesus Christ. We have been given this access, yet we are prone to forsake this opportunity in exchange for flinging angry birds <laughs> on our phone. God offers me the secrets of heaven, and instead I find myself glued to the opinions of talking heads on a screen far too often. Can you imagine the Israelites' confusion if he could observe a redeemed child of God today with full access to the God Almighty, with five different copies of his divine words sitting on his bookshelf behind him, living in fear and anxiety, angry because of words coming from a box on his phone or in his living room, scared because of the opinion of men? This morning, I want to encourage you to enter into the presence of God. Do not Of The point I want you to take from the tabernacle is do not neglect the access you have been given, child of God. I know you're busy. I know you're feeling the toll of weighty days. And this is all the more reason to come this week and rest at the feet of the Father. It's easy at this stage of life to use eh, lack of time as an excuse to not be with God. But I want to assure you this morning that because of Jesus and the price He paid, God is incredibly uh, gracious and welcoming to you, child. He delights in what you can give. I mean, think about these children this morning that we we hear we hear, and I'm glad that we hear them. That's okay. Um, think about them. What if, if when your child comes to you and he only has a minute just to sit down and tell you a story that doesn't even make sense? Are you is that not enough? Of course, it's enough. You're grateful for that moment you have with that child. When my daughter brings me the creation that she made, the gift that she made for me, which is some culmination of tape and glue and a bunch of stuff she stuck together, what an incredible gift that is that I would never turn away. So God invites you to give what you can. To give anything is better than nothing. The Bible is full of those who gave what they could. A young shepherd Only had two stones. A boy graciously offered Jesus the few loaves of bread that he had. And Peter tells a lame beggar, I have no money, but I have Jesus. And the giant falls, the crowds are fed, and the beggar leaps to his feet. The Lord has given you everything in Jesus, your great high priest. In exchange, he asks for what you have. With your morsel, he is able to feed not only you, but a multitude beyond what you can imagine. I want to pray just for that very thing together this morning.